Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, on to the show. Okay, today in The Less Stressed Life, we have a very special guest. And although she's going to be talking a lot about infusion therapy and vitamin C therapy, she also has a lot of history in helping bring integrative medicine to the forefront. So let's talk about her a little bit. So Dr. Jeannie Drisco is a professor emeritus at the Department of Internal Medicine at University of Kansas City Medical Center. During her previous tenure as a director of KU Integrative Medicine, she conducted translational research and provided patient care, education, and service to the region and the nation. Now, she is very humble and has done a lot to bring integrative medicine to the forefront. And it's so interesting to have an integrative medicine clinic in a regular hospital. So she mentions that some of the most important aspects of KU integrative medicine was the integrative medicine education agenda with students from medicine and nursing, pharmacy, nutrition, dietetics, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and naturopathic schools completing rotations in the division. So everyone kind of coming together. In 2008, Dr. Drisco developed an integrative medicine fellowship for MD primary care providers with a certificate granted at successful completion by the graduate medical office at the University of Kansas Medical Center. She was also instrumental in the creation of integrative nutrition program for master's level dietitians, co-developed and taught with KU Department of Dietetics and Nutrition and Dietitians at KU Integrative Medicine, and helped with that was a certificate that master's students, and we can talk a little bit about that because that's a very unique certificate, really the first of its kind in the nation. She has since stepped down as clinical director since 2018 of KU Integrative Medicine, but she is passionately devoting her time to research, scholarly writing, education, and recently helping other medical schools get an integrative programming into place. So welcome, Dr. Drisco. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So we were chatting a little bit off air and I think let's take a chance. We definitely want to get into IV vitamin C. That's going to be very interesting. But I get a lot of emails from people that say, I didn't know I was interested in integrative medicine until I started listening to this podcast, or you've really opened my eyes to different things. And so briefly, can you tell us about like, for example, for dietitians, you guys did create a certificate that people can get, anyone can get. If you're a dietitian, or if you're another professional, I believe you can go get this certificate. Is that correct from KU Integrative Med? It is a master's level for registered dietitians. So it's pretty specific and it's pretty narrow, the funnel 
getting into the program. But once you get into that program and get your master's certificate in integrative nutrition, you know, the funnel opens up at the other end and the world is your oyster, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about how you got into this a little bit, because it is not very common to start an integrative medical clinic in a hospital 20 years ago. So (laughs) let's talk about how that happened. Well, it was a very unusual time. And, you know, there really wasn't a good track to become educated. But I had a personal experience, a health crisis in the early 90s. And I got better using some integrated practices, simply better nutrition and some supplements. I mean, I was better very quickly. And I was not happy because in medical school, we were told that, first of all, nutrition wasn't that important. Just eat your standard American diet and that supplements were a waste of money and made expensive urine. So our medical school education didn't really focus on any of that which was, I think, a tragedy. But because of my health crisis, I was able to refocus and relearn, not relearn, actually learn nutritional biochemistry. And I did it through getting to know different types of practitioners across the country and then having very good fortune of being trained by Hugh Reardon, who was a medical doctor. He since died in 2005, which was a huge tragedy. But anyway, he trained me in the use of intravenous vitamin C, the testing of vitamin, mineral, and other nutrients, and what good food is. He had a little cafeteria at the center in where he was located, and it really was all good, whole, natural food. So it was a wonderful opportunity. So after that training, and I received a certificate in integrative medicine or orthomolecular medicine from him, and the dean at the time of the University of Kansas Medical School asked me to come and start the program. This was maybe more in the later 90s by that time. And everybody in the United States wanted to have an integrated program at their medical school. (laughs) They didn't know what that meant. It often meant just maybe some mind-body or relaxation or acupuncture, nothing too aggressive, so to speak. But I was fortunate in that I was left alone. People really ignored me. And so I could pretty much develop what I wanted to develop. So that's a very long answer to your great question. Well, it is actually probably a very condensed answer to what years of work it was. But I think it's interesting. I wanted to talk a little bit more about everyone wanted an integrative medicine program in the early 2000s. But yet here we are in coming into 2020. And we're still working on that goal, right? So this is kind of a testament to how it takes a long time for things to get to where we would sometimes like them to be. Is that correct? Oh, it's really true. It's unfortunate because there was a seminal paper published in the 1990s about how much the lay public was interested in integrative medicine. They called it complementary and alternative medicine. And even before that, they called it unconventional medicine. That was the pejorative term. But the evolution has been slow and the the acceptance has been slow. And I think there's really right now a bigger backlash almost against integrative practices. But I liken it to that glass gasp of a dying institution. So... The conventional healthcare model is really not sustainable Mm -hmm. because of 
all of the chronic disease and the majority of it is lifestyle and diet and created. So if you don't fix the diet and the lifestyle underpinning for these very sick, chronically ill patients, you can't treat them. But the more acute care in conventional medicine is really focused on that acute episode where that patient is no longer a person, but a statistic, an average, and has a certain algorithm of the way you have to treat them. So they aren't treated as individuals. And that's not working for chronic care. So I really see this institutional medicine failing And that's where we're all coming in as a team, really, and that interprofessional team of dietitians and naturopaths and medical doctors and acupuncturists, everybody involved. And that's what's going to save this chronically ill population. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I talk to my own clients all the time about, we can look at things from different aspects. I always use a triad. We can look at this structurally or nutritionally and part emotionally. We can have a conversation about every symptom in at least those buckets. So the other thought I had from that is that we're making some progress. It's a slow progress, right? Sometimes that we don't. Sometimes your life cannot wait for the progress that needs to be made and you need to take responsibility for yourself and find your own providers. But hopefully this will become more mainstream. And I feel hope from that because Veterans Affairs, which is where I started a long, long ago, has its own integrative medicine program now. And they've added that. I mean, it's very simple, like you said, mind, body, medicine, etc. But it's a really a step in the right direction when such a large institution like that and such mm-hmm. and one that is so far reaching federally starts to integrate that component. And the w- people that are running that Tracy Cadet and Ben Kligler are absolutely awesome practitioners. They really understand integrative medicine to the fullest in that interprofessional team, what it takes. So I'm very excited about their program with the Department of Defense at the VA. Well, I love that you know everyone from all the pioneers, which is great. I've been around a long time. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned a term earlier, orthomolecular medicine. What's orthomolecular medicine? Well, it's interesting. Linus Pauling coined that term uh, back in the 70s, and he really saw that the biochemistry of an individual often has a twist or a turn. And what he wanted to do was make that biochemistry straight and heal it. And it might take food. It might take high doses of a nutrient, a supplement, but whatever that individual needs, that's what is really orthomolecular medicine. It's using natural products instead of synthetic products. It is. It is. Absolutely. Okay. So you learned about IV vitamin C from your mentor, who was Dr. Reardon. And was that a little bit lucky that he was in the same state or close enough to you to have training? Is that how that happened? (laughs) It was serendipitous for sure. I'd make great friends with people all around the country. And so I was asking them, could you train me? Or do you know how I could get trained? I had done a lot of going to conferences and listening to lectures and those kind of things. But I knew I needed to see patient care in action. And Jonathan Wright, who's in Washington State, told me, well, why don't you contact Hugh Reardon? He's in your backyard. So I'd never heard of him. So I called him up and he said, well, come down and have lunch with me. And I did. And he offered to train me. And I went back and forth from Kansas City to Wichita over a year's time. And it was really eye-opening. It was a wonderful center. It's still in existence, but it was the best training I could have had. Cool. And that was about 20 years ago. And that's when this all started, right? Yeah, it was about 25 years ago now. And so after that training, then I was asked to come start the program at KU Med. Mm -hmm. And you got to be in a corner in the OBGYN wing? (laughs) Yes. It was really an odd 
odd thing. Initially, no one, the dean had said, well, we're going to have this program, and no one in the medical center wanted to have anything to do with it. In fact, one of my doctor who had gone to medical school with my uncle had stopped me in the hallway when I came back to start this program. And he said, well, what are you doing? And I told him, well, I'm here to start an integrative medicine program. And he looked at me and he whirled around, walked off and never talked to me again. And this was a family friend. So anyway, Dr. Sterling Williams had just come from New York City. He was chair of OBGYN. And he said, well, I saw this work at Columbia Presbyterian. They had a women's center there, integrative women's center. So he said, I want it in my department. So that's how I ended up in OBGYN. And there wasn't any space. It was an old hallway. And they put me in a little room that used to have a safe in it. So when they collected money, like in the 40s, they put this money in the safe. Well, they moved the safe out, but it was like this little dingy closet. So... It's That's fun, where I started. Fun to laugh about now. Glad you don't have to go back to that place. And the happy ending of the story is it did become a large clinic later on under your guidance, correct? It did. It was a really a internationally known. We had patients from all over the world. And, you know, we had this multidisciplinary team that provided everything from the nutrition to neurofeedback, the infusion clinic, naturopathic medicine. It was really great. It was a wonderful team. So now you're doing research and actually you've been doing research on IV vitamin C therapy, but I believe, were you awarded a grant from NIH recently? Well, part of the research has been funded by the NIH, but a project we're working on now is just a pilot study and it's using intravenous vitamin C in bladder cancer for people that have no option but to go and have their bladders removed, so cystectomy. So uh, they're not eligible, really, the traditional chemotherapy. So we're looking to see if IV vitamin C might help change the way those cancer cells look when you do biopsies on the specimens. Has the vitamin C changed the appearance of the cancer cells? Mm -hmm. So I want to talk really specifically about what happens in IV vitamin C therapy for cancer. What is the mechanism that is happening? And by the way, this is something I feel like when someone says this, I feel like this was popularized by people going to Mexico and having this done for cancer. (laughs) And I could be wrong about that, but it's been going on in the US for a while as well. But it's one of the challenging things about integrated medicine is that sometimes this is probably just this way in regular medicine too. This clinic over here might do it differently than this clinic over here. So we can get Mm -hmm. into that too. But talk about first, why can vitamin C intravenous therapy via IV work on cancer? What's going on? Well, a very good friend of mine, Mark Levine at the NIH, did a interesting study in the 90s. And he found that when you give a vitamin C by mouth, it's a vitamin, it's an antioxidant. But when you put it in the vein, it becomes a drug and it becomes a pro-oxidant. So it actually is making hydrogen peroxide, which the cancer cells are very primitive and they don't have the mechanism to get rid of this hydrogen peroxide. So they're killed. But the normal cells in the human body can get rid of the hydrogen peroxide, so they're not damaged. So it's a very targeted, specific therapy that focuses on killing the cancer cell. If you take it by mouth, no matter what type you take, whether it's liposomal or powdered or 
buffered, whatever. If it's oral, it cannot have the same effect. It cannot raise that blood level high enough to form hydrogen peroxide. And that was proof. I think this is very interesting because we can't just go put hydrogen peroxide in a vein because it no. would, it's like excessively corrosive. But it's very interesting. I have some notes from a podcast you or an interview you did years ago where it talks about basically the hydrogen peroxide is produced because the vitamin C is reacting with different metals that are just there, iron, copper, and then it bursts from the hydrogen peroxide kills then or reduces the metabolism of the cancer cells, correct? Is that, that is absolutely right on. It okay. takes that transition metal, that intermediate step, and that occurs not in the bloodstream because the body can really quench that, but it happens in that extracellular space, which I think is a very magical part of our biology, that extracellular space, that fluid and structure around the cells, and that's where it occurs. So those metals in that space react when the vitamin C goes into the extracellular space. It reacts with the metals, and then you form the hydrogen peroxide, and that could be taken up into the cancer cell, or I'm not sure how to say this, but it can also sometimes a, an oxidized form of the vitamin C can be taken up by the cancer cell, but that's very, very small amount. So it's mostly the hydrogen peroxide that's doing the cell kill. Mm -hmm. How did people figure this out? I mean, so maybe it's one thing to learn that vitamin C was helping, but there's another thing to realize that it's because it's helping create hydrogen peroxide to go then kill cancer cells. How do you see that metabolism or how do you see that mechanism happening in action? It's actually pretty cool. So there's a couple of different ways that it's been done. We have a number of colleagues around the country, but our friends in Iowa have done a yeoman's amount of work with the oxidative properties of vitamin C. They've done a lot of what's called the basic science research research. And that also has been done by Mark Levine at the NIH. So they use very specialized forms of imaging and spin resonance and other types of scientific equipment approaches to look at the production of these pro-oxidative intermediate steps and then the actual pro-oxidant itself. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you another question, because I'm actually kind of fascinated by hydrogen peroxide for other reasons. But I mean, to take this otherwise, hydrogen peroxide in the body, doesn't it create free radicals? It does. Okay, so yes. tell us a little bit more about that and how, like, is it also killing good cells? Sometimes. Well, I think that's important to, first of all, you can't take, let's say, a tablespoon of hydrogen peroxide and swallow it and expect it to get to where the cancer cells are. Mm -hmm. So the patient should not do that. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some practitioners who do inject a very dilute concentrations of hydrogen peroxide because of its oxidative properties. But again, the bloodstream doesn't like hydrogen peroxide. And so it has multiple mechanisms to quench that, like a catalase, for example. So what the best delivery method is, the IV vitamin C, and that can be considered maybe a prodrug, a pharmaceutical drug that is introduced into the bloodstream, then is picked up by the extracellular space, and it's the production of that hydrogen peroxide that is causing that free radical burst. Now, normal cells, they are not harmed because they have their own mechanism to quench that, to get rid of that hydrogen peroxide, so they can 
stamp it out, so to speak. But in that milieu where the cancer cells are, it's very primitive. They don't have that biochemistry. They don't have that machinery to get rid of the hydrogen peroxide. So that oxidative burst can then kill that cancer cell, can give a message to the cancer cell to either go into apoptosis or go into necrosis, whatever the mechanism is it for that particular cancer cell. But that burst of oxidative damage is what's doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And apoptosis, if anyone doesn't know, although there's a lot of people that do that listen to this, that would be cell death, right? Essentially. Yes. So we actually had a cancer month recently on the podcast, and Dr. Arthur Frankel talked a lot about microbiome and cancer. And he talked a lot. I learned a lot about what cancer is doing in the body and how it seems to be adapting and like getting away from old treatments, like it's becoming smarter, essentially, and which is not good. So is that something that you are seeing as well? And maybe this is a good segue into asking, is there types of cancers and in times where IV vitamin C is more helpful than other times? Well, what we've seen is that a lot of times the oncologists think that it's an antioxidant. And if they give their chemotherapy or their radiation and then the patient wants to get IV vitamin C, they think the vitamin C is going to cancel out their therapies, which is not true. We've shown in our translational research, our clinical trials, and our basic science that it's actually uh, pro-oxidative, as we said. So there's synergism or even an additive effect with the chemotherapy or radiation. So they actually work hand in hand when given together. And so we will give the IV vitamin C with the chemotherapy. I used it in one of my clinical trials in ovarian cancer as a fluid loading dose. Uh, So they got the IV vitamin C as fluid, then they got their chemotherapy right after it. And we showed that it was synergistic in in that scenario. But that being said, what happens is often these oncologists want to wait till there's no other choices. They've done everything. They put the patient in hospice and, oh, I guess it's okay now you get the IV vitamin C. IV vitamin C doesn't work that way, Krista. It What it does is it needs a longer time course because it's doing things rather slowly. So if you start early in the care of a patient, you're going to have a better chance of showing an effect. So we start the IV vitamin C and it's a commitment. It's several times a week at least in an active cancer patient. And you're doing it with the radiation and or the chemotherapy, but you're staying on a schedule with the IV vitamin C. And then after several months time, then you retest, then you can look at you know, your CT PAT or, or other imaging or tumor markers, whatever. And then you make the decision whether it's going to be helpful or not. Mm-hmm. So we never just give it haphazardly and then test immediately. It, it's more of a long-term intervention. I think that's a good point to make because that is actually a good analogy for most natural medicine. You might take it at a higher dose and for a longer time, it seems, you know, for mm-hmm. it to be to have an effect than some things, some drugs may work quickly at a lower dose. I mean, if I just use, if I compare maybe herbs to antibiotics or something like that, right? You're using usually a higher dose for a little longer time, whereas maybe an antibiotic you take for five days. And so anyway, it just kind of reminds me a little bit of that. And that may not be Mm -hmm. a great analogy, but you know, it's good to have realistic expectations. So that's right. What I hear you saying is not good. Vitamin C therapy doesn't work very well when we're already in hospice or when cancer has progressed very, very far to this, where often people become in a desperation state and Mm -hmm. start to do a little bit of everything. Works better Mm -hmm. if you can start it sooner. Is there types of cancer that it works better for? Well, we do see benefit in a large number of cancers 
it might be easier just to tell you that we don't often find a huge benefit in an advanced prostate cancer patient. And I think that prostate cancer is a little bit different. It doesn't have that same dependence on sugar glucose like other tumors, that Warburg effect and the glycolysis. The prostate cancer seems to be more dependent on fat for its energy. So I think it's a little bit different. I don't want to get too far afield in the biochemistry, but so prostate is one that we haven't really seen a huge amount of success in, although we do treat prostate cancer patients. And our trials have been largely in ovarian cancer and now our bladder cancer and prostate cancer. So those are in the trials, in the research projects, those are the ones we focused on only because they're often the types of cancers that don't get treated very well conventionally. So then the oncologists are more comfortable with us partnering with us in these cancers. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, people have to, they have to remove these organs, essentially, right? Yes. That's the alternative? Okay. If they're able to, they may be too far gone. You know, they may be stage four, which is, you know, pretty typical for uh, prostate and for ovarian, unfortunately. So those patients, they're okay with us starting with the IV vitamin C with the chemotherapies or radiation. I know you didn't want to get into this. But I wanted to make sure you mentioned this kind of, you said it's the Warburg effect that other cancers like to feed on different types of yes. things versus yes. prostate they, likes to feed on fat. Most cancer cells are very primitive. Their whole goal is just to make replicas of themselves. Mm -hmm. They don't really want to build or grow in the traditional type of a cell way that it does. They're only focused on increasing their numbers and spreading. And so they've turned off a lot of their machinery and to grow and to build, they do that through what's called aerobic glycolysis and it's the Warburg effect. Okay. Got it. I think I may have said that wrong. It may be anaerobic glycolysis, mm -hmm. but no, it's not. It's aerobic because they do have oxygen in their milieu, but they aren't able to use the regular pathways to produce ATP. So they've got a more primitive way of producing that energy to replicate themselves and they use a lot of sugar. So that's one of the first things we do with our cancer patients is get them on a whole foods diet with very limited sugar, almost none. And most of the sugar that we count as sugar comes from whole foods like some fruits. Mm -hmm. Got it. Well, thank you for mentioning that because there's a lot of information out there that's like that. And sometimes people say, well, show me the science and show me the studies. Or uh, There the was even an article in uh, the Journal of Science a few years back. I can't tell you exactly what year it was, but they talked about cancer and the Warburg effect. Okay, cool. Great. Well, it's a good place if someone wants to go look a little bit more into it. Okay, so let's talk about what's going on with the IV therapy a little bit more. So you mentioned that sometimes you give it as a loading or fluid load before the chemotherapy, so literally next to each other. But the dosing is very interesting, and it's given over a few hours typically. So can you tell us about that? Yes, the dose itself is generally high, particularly in stage 4 cancer. And it can be anywhere from 50 grams, not milligrams, grams, mm -hmm. to 100 grams. And that has to be put in a carrier fluid that is about a thousand ml bag. So it's a big bag of fluid with a large dose of vitamin C in it. And we generally give that, let's say it's 50 grams in the bag. So we give that about a half a gram a minute. So a 50 gram bag will take about 100 minutes 
So you double the amount. We don't like to run it in too quickly Mm -hmm. because we've done a pharmacokinetic study, which we're just in the process of writing up. But if you do a very rapid infusion, it spikes up really high, the vitamin C in the plasma, and it falls off really fast. So what we want to do is give it at a pretty consistent rate so that it's infusing in the vein and getting into that extracellular space. Mm-hmm. Give it a chance to do some work. Don't just dump yes, it. Yes, that's work. right. And yeah. people are in you know, a big fat hurry. They want to get in there and get out. So, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> But it's your job. We tell that to people all the time. When you have cancer, that's your job to take care of yourself and to get your therapies and be supported by family and friends and allow that those people to come around you and take care of you. Mm-hmm. That's a really great, I love that point. That's wonderful. So just as a note, 1500 grams is a lot, a lot, a lot of people. If you go buy vitamin C on the shelf, which we have previously said, not similar whatsoever, but what people usually would take orally is maybe one gram. So, or a thousand. <laughs> so very right. different. I'm just demonstrating the difference there. It's a very large change. So that brings me to another point. I'd love to talk about some of the success stories and what you kind of see coming from this. But I think this is a good point to talk about what about probably the biggest problem with this is that this isn't something everyone has access to, right? You have to be near a place where you can get this done a few times a week if you have this kind of cancer. But there are a lot of places in different... It's so funny to talk to people from all over the country because when you talk to certain people in certain states, they're over here doing infusion therapies and all kinds of things because that's popular there. And then over here in the Midwest where I live, not so popular typically, which is why Kansas is sort of an interesting place because it's a pocket of integrative stuff kind of among the Midwest. So these pop-up clinics, how does a person know? I mean, this is the challenge, right? And this Mm -hmm. is the challenge with maybe complementary and alternative therapies in general. Quality is not consistent. So tell us a little bit about that. Like, what do you see? Well, I have a concerns about these pop-up clinics, and often they'll advertise themselves as hangover clinics or fluid clinics, whatever, but generally the amount of vitamin C that they give is very, very low, maybe a gram in the vein. So again, not very much, and certainly not as much as 50 grams or above. Also, there are some dangers in getting IV vitamin C if you don't do the testing beforehand. And what I mean by that is you have to check what's called the G6PD enzyme. So it's a blood test, G6PD. And if that number is in a normal range, you're safe to get it. But if that number is in the low range, which is very common around the Mediterranean area and in an African descent. If you have a low G6PD and you get the IV vitamin C, you're going to find that the red blood cells actually break apart and you get hemolysis is what it's called. And some patients I've heard of and know about, uh, not in our clinic because we always test, but have heard about from other clinics, the patients actually begin urinating bright red blood because their red blood cells are broken down. And one woman actually lost a significant amount of blood and needed to go to the hospital to be transfused. So you have to go to a place that checks G6PD. That's first and foremost. And then secondly, some people may have oxalate kidney stones. And if you give IV vitamin C and they have a history of oxalate kidney stones and those are active, if they have stones in their kidney at the time, you could actually precipitate more kidney stones because of the pathway of vitamin C and its breakdown, blah, blah, blah. So that's the other thing that you have to be cautious about. So it has to be done at a place where they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is a challenge. So it's a challenge. what about glutathione added to vitamin C? Like what about people who are doing a cocktail? 
Uh That's an interesting question because uh, glutathione, there's nothing like vitamin C in the natural product world in that when you give it in high enough doses, it becomes a pro-oxidant. But glutathione, no matter how high the dose is, does not seem to become a pro-oxidant. So you've got a bag of solution that has a pro-oxidant potential and you're putting in an antioxidant in it. Those two things are fighting so to speak. So we never gave glutathione with vitamin C. Mm -hmm. If someone needed glutathione, let's say they had really a significant reaction to their chemotherapy with neuropathy, numbness, and tingling of the hands and feet and loss of sensation, then we might give them glutathione intravenously, but away from, apart from the intravenous vitamin C. So that would be another day that they come to the clinic. Okay. I want to talk about this science because even though there's a lot of health professionals listening, in case you're not. So antioxidants fight free radicals. Free radicals are basically atoms without, so if we go back to sixth grade science, atoms without a full electron shell. Remember that circles around there and it should be full. And then some are not, sometimes we're missing those. That's a free radical. And then free radical goes through the cells or goes through the body and tries to rip off electrons off the other cells and causes all this damage. And it's what, Mm -hmm. and it is a thing, like it just happens. And so it's what's causing aging and wrinkles and cancer, you know, when you have so many basically like not good cells. And so antioxidants, which are found in fruits and vegetables, right? Vitamin C, vitamin E, et cetera. I mean, and all other colorful things, many other things as well, healthy fats, et cetera. Antioxidants put those electrons back on the cells or back on the atoms, essentially. And I hope I'm saying this like good enough. Put it back on and make it not a free radical essentially anymore. You can correct me on any of that if you want, but what is a pro-oxidant? That's a word that's not used often. No, but if you think about chemotherapy, for example, that's a pro-oxidative therapy. It goes in and it is creating a lot in itself is something that is ripping off more electrons. I think that was a beautiful, very well put, by the way. But the chemotherapy goes in there and it causes that damage too by ripping off more electrons and damaging the cells. But it does it to all the cells, the healthy cells and the abnormal cells. Whereas the vitamin C, when it acts as that pro-oxidant going in and causing that burst of damaging, ripping off the electrons, as you said, it does it only with the cancer cell. And the healthy cells are are able to say, well, I've got this machinery to turn this around, to turn that off, to get rid of those damaging chemicals. Mm -hmm. Got it. I would mention that I didn't really even understand antioxidants and how they were working on free radicals until I was a double major in journalism and nutrition. And I didn't even understand that until one of my jobs one year was to interview all the researchers at the university, which basically was my favorite job ever, which is why podcasting (laughs) is my favorite job ever. I'm just a curious, I just like learning and synergizing the information. And so uh, a cancer researcher kind of did a better explanation. And so I don't know if my explanation is that great. But the thing that matters most is that the idea clicked in someone's brain, right? So yes, that it makes sense. So let's say the people listening to this do not have cancer. Is there use for IV vitamin C? Like what are the health benefits of IV vitamin C in someone who is not a cancer patient? Like, Do you take IV vitamin C? That's a really interesting question. I think IV vitamin C at much lower doses than we use for cancer is a tonic, so to speak. It's a therapeutic support to many body systems 
first of all, one thing we know, even at the high doses, and we showed this in one of our research projects, is that it causes what we call the feel-good effect. There's another project we were involved in that hasn't been published yet, but that was in diabetics, and it showed that when the blood sugar is out of control, the diabetics get depressed. And we found out that they're not pulling in the vitamin C across that blood-brain barrier. So the glucose is fighting with the vitamin C, but when the vitamin C is able to be forced across the blood-brain barrier through a number of mechanisms, which I'm not going to get into, but we want that vitamin C in the brain. The brain loves vitamin C. And when it's in the brain, you feel good. You don't have that depression. So feel-good effect, it also is our little second brain, the adrenal glands, Vitamin C is pumped into the adrenal glands against the concentration gradient. So the adrenal glands need that vitamin C as well. And when your adrenal glands are working well, you feel really good. Mm -hmm. Also, it can act as an antiviral and antibacterial. And this is Linus Pauling advocated for this with oral dosing, but it's even more effective with IV dosing. Let's say the common cold. If you're in the early, early stages of developing the cold, for example, you can get an IV vitamin C and it helps reduce the severity of it and reduce the length of the infection. So it has benefit there. So mononucleosis, for example, whether whatever virus it's related to, but we see college students that have mononucleosis and they're told that it's going to take them a month to get better. We take those patients and they get 25 grams, not even a massive dose, 25 grams of vitamin C on three successive days. So the first day the student comes in, they're sleeping in the chair and getting their vitamin C. The next day they brought their phone with them and they're playing a video game. The third day they have their backpack with them and they're doing their homework. So it really has a significant effect in turning something around that the student probably would have lost a semester at school. Mm -hmm. So, and I think it's just a good all around, as I said, tonic. Yeah, it's good for a lot of things. I'm going to summarize that a little bit. Since the brain loves vitamin C, it's good for any mood condition or a stressed person because adrenals get really taxed when stress is going on. And then viruses and bacteria further stress those adrenal glands. And so I think I feel that we hear vitamin C so frequently in that case, right? And we always talk about vitamin C for immune health. And so to even riff on what's going on there a little bit. But, you know, we didn't do a good job of really mentioning. I asked you about glutathione, but I didn't explain for everyone else. The glutathione, I think, is like the boss at the liver. It's like this master antioxidant. But you talked about it implicated in neuropathy, which is tingling in the hands and feet. And I don't think about glutathione with neuropathy. Do you want to say anything else about glutathione? It's just an antioxidant that gets recycled from vitamin C a little bit and other places and other amino acids. Well, I do want to mention that what I'm going to tell you about is anecdotal. It's not something I've researched, but we found that some patients that have chronic lung disease if we nebulize the glutathione, and so they're breathing this mist of glutathione into their lungs, they have improvement in lung function. Not everybody. And that could go for a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or an asthma or a fibrotic lung disease. But again, that's not for everyone, but it is helpful in a chronic lung. So again, just squelching or stemming that oxidative burst. So it's a wonderful, as you said, master antioxidant. I do love it in the liver. It's the wonderful antioxidant in the liver. Mm -hmm. And actually, now that you said that, I think I have seen some information or research around glutathione for 
lung or cardiovascular conditions. So anyway, maybe not. I don't know. I'm guessing that came out of somewhere. You used it. You used it because you had seen it, even if you hadn't done your own research on it. I'm guessing you guys tried it because it had worked for other people. That's correct. You know, that's the way it is right now in integrative medicine. It's more of an apprentice type model. So someone's done this and it has a record of safety. So, you know, we'll try it. Mm -hmm. Right. Which isn't always, you know, there's some people that have gotten in trouble with that. So, but I think that's the history of medicine generally, conventional, integrative, whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the most challenging things about our discussion today is what you're doing is really exciting, but not everyone can get it everywhere. I wonder what your advice is for someone who wants to have this near them, but there isn't, but they're also, maybe they feel like a catalyst for change and they'd like to advocate for having it. I mean, how does a place go about having a good IV or orthomolecular or vitamin C infusion program? Well, I think that you need to have someone at the helm who's trained and has a good reputation and is willing to do the right thing, whether that's a medical doctor or an osteopathic doctor or a naturopathic doctor. Most states, you can practice medicine and open an IV clinic. And so I think the reputation of the person is important, but also look at their credentials. Where did they train? Who did they train with? And what type of certifications do they carry? So I think that's important. And then do they look at the person globally? Do you see that patient before you recommend an IV? What, no matter what it is, you've got to see that person, know who they are, do a thorough evaluation, including conventional laboratory analysis and vitamin, mineral, good fat levels and, you know, whatever. So you have to know that person really, really well before you launch into any type of a program. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't get to chat about what are some of the results you've seen using IV vitamin C therapy in cancer. Also, we didn't mention how it reduces the sometimes negative side effects of chemotherapy like nausea. Is that correct? That's correct. In our ovarian cancer trial, we showed that the lower grade adverse events that are often seen with cancer, and that can be anywhere from depression, nausea, vomiting, loss of appetite, just general aches and pains, how being on a good program with diet, lifestyle, and the IV vitamin C can really reverse those uh, lower grade findings. Now, the higher grade findings, the grade fours and fives, usually you can't, once you have those from your chemotherapeutic effects, there's very little you can do to turn those around, like the severe neuropathies. And with chemo brain is a common thing. I don't know if any of your guests have talked about chemo brain, but it's a real side effect from chemotherapy. So once things are pretty advanced, the IV vitamin C can't help it, but the early grade complaints, the nausea, vomiting, et cetera, can be helped with the IV vitamin C. And then we also have seen significant reduction in tumor burden with the IV vitamin C with or without chemotherapy. I did recently, we had a case report in uh, pancreatic cancer. The gentleman was told essentially to go home and get his affairs in order, but he really wasn't willing to do that. So he sought out IV vitamin C for himself and had a pretty remarkable change in the appearance of his liver Mets and he had a lot of liver mets, and those disappeared again gradually over time. It's not overnight. And then reduction of the mass in the head of the pancreas. And what's interesting about this, and I do want to mention this again, we haven't published this, but it's almost like the tumor begins to encapsulate, it forms a capsule around itself, it shrinks, it becomes 
fibrotic, it becomes a scar. And then over time, we actually see calcification occurring in that scarred mass as it becomes more and more walled off and scarred down, so to speak. So I've seen this in a number of patients who've been on IV vitamin C long-term, but it was shown in this one case report and we had images in the case report as well. Mm -hmm. So if people are listening to this and they say, gosh, I really wish I hear the remarkable work you're doing, but they also see that it takes time for all of this to gain traction and to become more accepted. What can we do to help improve or elevate this as a safe therapy to use in cancer and beyond? Is there anything that we all can be supportive in doing? Well, it's all about the patient in my mind. And I think the patients, the grassroots movement of the patients is really important. They've got a voice, a bigger voice than they think they do. They often feel isolated and and alone. But there are organizations like Alliance for Natural Health USA that is a grassroots movement. And all of these voices of people, almost a million voices of the lay public can come together and advocate for change. So there are ways to become a member of that movement. You don't have to be a researcher. I think that's the slowest path of all. But I think that the public has a stronger voice than they believe that they do. So, Dr. Drisco, what are you doing now? Now you are off in research and you are supporting other programs. Tell us a little bit about how your work has changed over this last year. Well, I'm passionate about education of integrative practitioners of whatever stripe they are. And I feel like that's my mandate for my career going forward. We need to have really well-trained integrative practitioners. And the foundation of integrative healthcare is nutrition. And nutrition is so poorly understood. There's so many myths out there, medical myths about nutrition, that I feel like As a team, we all need to come together, and your work is certainly doing that, educating a lot of people, both healthcare practitioners and the public, about good nutrition. So I applaud you for that. So the education is coming through a a number of venues. We have a textbook coming out. We is uh, Diana Nolan, a wonderful dietitian nutritionist in California, Dr. Lee Wagner, who has her PhD in dietetics and is a registered dietitian. And then myself, we pulled together, oh my gosh, 50 authors plus to help us write a textbook called Integrative and Functional Medicine Nutrition Therapy Principles and Practices. It's in the process of being published by Springer as we speak. So it should be out in January. But It's really the true focus of the underpinning of integrative care is the amalgamation of these authors. And they're not just dietitians, they're dietitians and naturopaths and medical doctors and osteopaths and acupuncturists. So, you know, we're practicing here what we preach is bringing this group together. So that's one way is through the textbook. The second way is through spreading the certificate programs broadly. Jefferson Medical just recently initiated a program, but there's programs all over the country now of different types of integrative practitioners trying to educate other healthcare providers. So those are growing, and I'd like to be part of that as well. And then a continuing scholarly writing. And, you know, also, I think educating uh, the way you are podcasting is so important. It's just reaching people where they are and they can listen and take away what they want. 
Yeah, I love this platform because we have the time and the ability and to talk deep about a topic like this that otherwise sometimes people are not. And we're using busy times, right? People usually use this when they're doing the dishes or driving to work or something like that. So we're using those moments and just kind of our goal with this podcast is just to kind of inspire and create these aha moments on like, oh, I did not even know that you could do that. And wow, what great information around it. That's kind of the goal here. So thank you for all your work. I think you can add to your list doing some apprenticeship or some type of training for IV vitamin C therapy in order to grow it farther. (laughs) Hopefully, (laughs) maybe that's already in the works. So Dr. Drisco, where can people find you? I believe you have a website now. And I think maybe we'll publish this episode once the book is out so we can link to it in the show notes. I think the book is going to be critical for a lot of people. We hope that even policymakers will look at this book to develop really sustainable healthcare policies for America. But also, I have a website, and it's The Art and Soul of Healing. So I'm going to have blogs and information there as well. So I think that's the best way to find me. Yeah, that's where people can find you. So we'll have the book linked in the show notes when it comes out, because this will come out around that time. We'll try to sync that up. Thank you so much for coming on today and for all your diligent work. This is that slow work to kind of change the world, essentially. And so we really appreciate all your efforts. And thank you so much for schooling us on really the mechanisms and how vitamin C intravenous therapy can be done in the United States safely. Oh, you're a wonderful host. Thank you. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stress Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stress Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 